Good morning. It is my privilege to introduce to you Dr. Gerardo Marti. Dr. Marti is the William R. Keenan Jr. Professor of Sociology at Davidson College, but he's lived in Louisville for the past year while serving as interim executive director, no, yes. interim executive director of the Louisville Institute. Dr. Marti has published broadly on race, religion, and social change. Currently, his research is focused on churches actively contributing or confronting racial injustice. Within his extensive research, he is focused on uncovering dynamics of contemporary issues like inequality, religious innovation, and political power. He has worshiped with us often at Highland over the past year and has had a special interest in our anti-racism efforts. Dr. Marti, we are so pleased to have you in our pulpit today and we look forward to learning from you, to being inspired by you as we as a church seek to respond to the challenges of our times. Thank you for being here. And now if you'll stand and join with me in the reading of the gospel. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Creator and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Word of God for the people of God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Our gospel reading for today comes from the very last moments of Jesus' life on earth. It's literally the last lines of the gospel of Matthew, where the resurrected Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The book of Matthew itself is a marvelous bridge in our Bibles. It starts with a family history of Jesus from Father Abraham, who was explicitly told by God, go out from your country, your people, and your father's household, all the way to Mother Mary, who, while she was still pregnant, comprised a striking, beautiful song found in Luke on how the birth of her son was the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham and to his descendants. The story moves on to Jesus' birth, his teaching and healing, his death, resurrection, the whole gospel represents a change in tone in the scriptures, a new spiritual reality. Then here at the very end, in his last words on earth, a summation, go, therefore. It's the resurrected Jesus extending an invitation, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, urging us to go out into the world, expanding the life of the church so that the missional promise 
given to Abraham, affirmed to Mary, lived out by Jesus, is carried on, extending outward to every corner of the earth, a global, inclusive, worldwide community. The ministry of Jesus has always been done in community. He was baptized by John. He was with the 12, with a larger circle of women and men, sending out the 72, followed by multitudes. At one point, the crowd is so heavy, his mom and brothers were trying to talk to him, and he points toward the disciples and says, here, these are my mother and my brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother, always in community. After his resurrection, he's leaving, turns to them, and says, your turn. As I have lived in community centered on the gospel of the kingdom, building relationships as deep as family, now you go and do the same. It's only if we personalize a private Jesus who meets my needs would, would we be surprised by the Great Commission. Jesus' movement was public, communal, was connected even to strangers his disciples didn't even know. At one point, Jesus said, we have these people who are connected to us. John had come to him and said, we have someone driving demons out in your name. We tried to stop him because he doesn't follow us. And Jesus said, don't stop him. He's part of us. Whoever isn't against you is for you. A shockingly inclusive Jesus is the one we like to preach, but it is not always the one we live. We know that even at a glance of church history that what was intended as an expansive invitation became the ground for the exercise of power. Called to be a liberating community, the church became a controlling one. Over and over again, the church has taken Jesus' call to be an ever-expanding community and made it a closed community. The church became a social group with cultural boundaries. People were only allowed to join if they bound themselves to customs and expectations, only if every mirror, member mirrors to each other the same prejudices. And as the church increased in power, its members increased their prejudices. In fact, it's a sociological truism that the more privileged we are, the more segregated we become. The more privileged we are, the more segregated we become. Which is why the invitation represented in the Great Commission, when read with its fullest intention, is an act of justice, because justice always requires that we engage in radical inclusion. Go and make disciples. For the past thousand years, the Great Commission was read into the conquest and colonization of the world. The Crusades and the conquest of the Americas folded into the Enlightenment, and it was distorted into a civilizing mission a mission based on the profound degrading of any group that was deemed to be uncivilized, a mission to people who were not believed to be fully human. We know that for much, maybe most of Christian history, making disciples of all nations was read through the lens of a racial and spiritual hierarchy. The mission was often violent. Every time the wealthy white Western church crossed borders, whether to domestic indigenous peoples or internationally to places like Africa, Asia, India. Their moral mission presumed that white Christians were the good Christian people 
who achieved the highest form of civilization. It was a fact, and God had entrusted them with the mission to civilize the colored people of the world, what Rudyard Kipling summarized as the white man's burden. Christian white people ruled over the indigenous and idolatrous heathen, considered savages they needed good Christian people to model and enforce civilization, to protect them, but really to protect us. And because they were seen as incapable of ever becoming fully civilized, they were made to serve white people, literally chaining their unruly bodies for the benefit of white men, which of course enabled their freedom so that they could have the time and leisure to achieve the fullness of their humanity. In the minds of educated and powerful people, they believed that in the providence of history, serving white men fulfilled the larger mission of civilizing the world as a whole. It wasn't hidden, but explicit. And it filtered into our own history. Read the statements, political documents, and sermons of the advocates of slavery, and you find the blessing of America attributed to the subservience of black bodies serving not just economic prosperity, but a higher morality based in the superiority of white civilization. The civilizing mission meant control of land and people. Read the calls for Indian removal and you find white people saying they would more productively use the empty land than indigenous people would. No invitation, no conversation. The mission of Jesus for an expanding community became a nightmare of oppression. And you might say, Gerardo, nice history lesson. That's not us. Obviously, those people, those white supremacists, were not good Christian people. Certainly, we're better off now. But friends, listen. Even today, racial segregation remains a symptom of control, keeping people apart from us who are incapable and unworthy of being part of our good Christian community. But let's bring it a bit closer and talk about our day-to-day -day lives. I mean, we've had some tough times coming out of COVID, coming out of the pandemic. Even here in Louisville over the last few weeks, we've had some really, really hard times. And I, maybe like you, have found myself thinking about what was happening to me emotionally as I was processing about all that was going on around. I'm still shaken about this 16-year-old African-American teenager who was shot for knocking on the wrong door. With this stranger at the door, the man who shot him said he feared for his life. We also know about a 20-year-old white woman with friends looking for a friend's house, turned into the wrong driveway, and was shot and killed as they were leaving. Maybe you heard about a teenager who mistakenly opened the door of a car she thought was her friend's, saw a man in the passenger seat and quickly found her friend's car instead, but before they could leave, he walked over to their car. She tried to apologize, but he took his gun and shot them, hurting one, critically injuring another. We hear about shootings at work, on the beach, in the mall, on the street. I think of myself as a pretty outgoing person, but I'm fighting the feeling of wanting to just keep to myself. I have just enough privilege that I could just mind my own business just with my family, my few friends. 
And I've been to a lot of places where a lot of people are afraid to go. Eastern Europe after the wall fell deep into Russia, Mexico, and California in the barrios of East LA. I'd introduce myself, get to know others. I've gained so much from just getting to know people. I may think of myself as a good Christian, but I've grown to be very suspicious of strangers, any stranger. Even people who are nice to me, like maybe they're too nice. Like, why are you so nice? I think maybe they're wanting to take advantage of me, to con me. And COVID and masking and avoiding infections and isolating only adds to this retreat. It's contributed to our loss of being able to know how to engage with others freely and spontaneously. Anybody? I don't even know how to approach anyone anymore. Am I being creepy? Am I smiling too much? You know the feeling? I'm fighting the feeling of not wanting to engage with others, maybe because I don't want to put them in a position where they're uncomfortable. I may be a good Christian, but we live in a world where an unexpected interaction is seen as a threat, and it's pushing us away from each other. And texting, do you like to text? Do you prefer to text? Texting's only adding to this. You realize that you only receive messages from people you No, at least that's the way it's supposed to be. And a text, well, you can decide when to interact. It's your choice. You're in control of whether you want to engage or not. Texting is a symptom of how we're throwing out the unexpected. It only adds to our self-segregation. I mean, even in church, you know, we have something called the passing of the peace, and I'm sure you're all lovely people. But if you're anything like me, the passing of the peace is the most uncomfortable part of the whole service. I turn around, peace be with you, Christ be with you, hello, nice being with you, but I don't know. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I suspect that for many, perhaps most, the passing of the peace is the most painful part of coming to church. Anybody with me? I once went to a church where they had on the screens a timer of 60 seconds, a countdown. (laughs) As if to say, just a few more seconds, that's all. Won't need me to suffer much longer. And you overlay all of that with our living in a time when there's a fear of strangers. I mean, it's the anxiety of unexpected encounters. It means the avoidance of strangers. We'd rather have a little distance, avoid getting caught in the immediate, spontaneous sense of being on the spot. We're throwing out unexpected encounters with strangers Don't talk to strangers has risen to a principle that strangers cannot be trusted. I may be a good Christian, but if I'm honest, I don't want to be in a place where I'm fearing for my own life because somehow they may feel threatened by me. I stream a lot of TV movies, and like our pastor, Mary Alice, I like all those Disney movies, Disney princess movies. But the fantasies of the richest people have them being in a mansion or on a yacht or on an island. You've seen Little Mermaid? Fairy tales of kings and their castles for the protection of the princess. They're sheltered in a palace, in the tower. Do you remember Howard Hughes? One of the richest men in the world. But his wealth and privilege locked him up in his own cocoon of paranoia 
long hair, fingernails growing out. He could go anywhere, do anything, meet anyone. But he chose the safety of being alone. The dream of wealth is leave me alone. Is that where we're headed? We're actively segregating ourselves. Howard Thurman, pastor and theologian, contrasts the Great Commission with the Great Delusion. He said the idea that the human spirit can abide functioning in isolation is one of the great delusions. We cannot abide isolation. The American dream is property, my own space, leave me alone. I was recently talking to a pastor who learned that several of his members, good Christian people, had been quietly arming themselves. I'm a good Christian, but don't step on my lawn, don't go into my driveway, don't knock on my door. I'm a good Christian, but I'm going to stand my ground, protect my space, police my place, killing a stranger if I feel threatened. The more privileged we are, the more segregated we become. Self-segregation is a form of isolation. Howard Thurman warned us, isolation only breeds contempt. Which is why justice requires an effort of radical inclusion. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Go, going across a stream or through a passage to travel, really it means to depart from a familiar place. Discipling is pedagogical, teaching, talking, using words to connect. Nations, ethne. In the context, it can only mean people who are different from you. You may have heard the term xenophobia. It literally means fear of the stranger. The Great Commission is a movement from isolation, self-segregation, toward the stranger, the unknown other, the one who is different from us, the unexpected stranger. The Greek word philo-xenos is typically translated hospitality, philo-xenos. But it literally means love of the stranger. In a recent interview, the theologian Willie James Jennings said, at the heart of Christian community is creating belonging where there had been boundary, border, separation, and segregation. A Christian sense of belonging always cuts across every other kind of alignment and allegiance. And Eric Barreto, professor of the New Testament, followed up, saying a Christian vision of belonging is also a giving up of control. We have been invited into the life of a God who invites people we would prefer God would not invite. That reality of a wild God who continues to draw people together, who we would prefer not to be together, is where the real challenge of the Christian witness of belonging lies. I'll leave you with this. At its simplest, Jesus' last words, go and make disciples of all nations, is a call calls you and I to love. Love at the heart of the gospel, entrusted to us to share with others. Love is the overcoming of our own self-segregation, especially to people who are radically different from you. As Howard Thurman once said, love is the antithesis of isolation. So friends, 
Go therefore into all the world. Go to the stranger in love. Let us go and go in peace.